recognize him publicly, and I want to thank Bruce today for all the work he did on the revision of New Testament church leadership. But uh, you know, some years ago we wrote the book, finally totally out of sale, all gone, none left, no inventory. I didn't even have a copy. And so we revised it, and Bruce has spent innumerable hours getting it published. So I publicly want to thank my brother for all the work. Sometimes God gives us a word that Clonzo doesn't want to hear. Merry Christmas. I think most of you could hear me without this, but I want to record it for posterity. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hello. You know, there are times God gives us a word, and we pray and we pray and we pray about it, and it won't go away. And it's a word we really don't want to bring. And that's where I find myself today. And the word I think God has given me is this. When God removes his hand. Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be destroyed among them. For they exchanged the, the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons a due penalty of their error. 
just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now many of you know that for most of my life, I've been a shade tree mechanic. Now I'm no longer on that, I am that, because in the last 20 years, automobiles have so much electronics on them, I'm absolutely dead in the water when I try to diagnose some kind of a problem. But in the old days, when a vehicle didn't run properly, I usually could diagnose the problem and fix it. For example, after an engine is warmed up and there's smoke coming out of the tailpipe, you look at it. If it's white, you know that some way water is getting into the cylinders, which means usually either a leaking head gasket or a cracked head, God forbid, which of course is a major thing. If the smoke coming out of the tailpipe is blue, that means oil is getting into the cylinders, which could mean something like the rings are frozen in the piston grooves, and so you put some CD2 in the oil, and you put some upper lube in the gas and drive 100 miles real fast without stopping. And if that doesn't fix it, then you need a ring job. <laughs> of course, if it's black, that means the fuel-air mixture is too rich, and so you first look to see if the air filter needs to be replaced. If it's not that, then obviously some carburetor work needs to be done. The smoke was a symptom of a condition, and the color of the smoke indicated the nature of the problem. When we read this passage in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes a society displaying symptoms that indicate that God has removed his restraining hand. Now Paul probably in this section was specifically referring to the Gentile world because as he moves on in Romans he talks about the Jews and then finally concludes in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as I listen to newscasts, as I watch television programs, as I read magazines, I can't avoid thinking about this passage in Romans chapter 1 as we see not only where our culture is going, but the place to which it has already arrived. 
Now this morning I made a list of things, but I don't think I'll read them because I think you know them as well as I. And you know, when I hear these things, I'm not angry, but I'm grieved because of where our culture and really Western culture as a whole is going and there comes to mind that passage of Isaiah 5:20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter it is tragic that even Sometimes our courts are calling what is good evil and what is good evil. And so I have to step back and realize that we're dealing with a culture that is exactly like that which Paul described in Romans chapter 1 in which God said, okay, Have your way, I remove my restraining hand. And this is what happens when God does that. And I have to ask, has God withdrawn his hand from our culture, from our nation, from much of our world? Why would God remove his restraining hand? Well, it's because, as Paul said, rebellious people choose to not honor honor him as God, and they become impressed with themselves, and in man's mind, man becomes a measure of all things. And Romans chapter 3, which also gives another catalog, concludes in, in verse 17, verse 18, rather, There is no fear of God before their eyes. When a culture comes to that condition, it seems God removes his restraining hand. If we think things are bad now, there will be a time when things will be worse. One of the most puzzling passages of Scripture is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. And one of the problems we have sometimes in Paul's epistles, it's like being on one side of a phone conversation. You're in a room, and somebody's in the room with you, and you're on the phone, and you can't hear what's being said on the other end. And so you sort of figure out what the conversation is, is all about. And much of Paul's writings, at least some of Paul's writings, are like that. He had visited these churches. He had given teaching. He had mentioned specific things. Some of them had written him letters about it. And so Paul then in his letters refers to what he said when he was there or what they said in the letter to him, which we don't have. And so we listen to Paul's side of the conversation and try to glean the truths from what he says. Let no one in any way deceive you. He's talking now about the second coming. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. 
And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Boy, don't we wish we had his whole lecture. (laughs) And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. A few weeks ago, Bruce brought a marvelous sermon on the second coming of Christ. It was flawless, flawless in its content and presentation. Let me elaborate briefly. There are three conditions that have to be met before Jesus comes. First of all, the gospel preached to all nations. Matthew twenty four fourteen, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nation. whole world is okimene, means all the occupied world. Secondly, in Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11, we're told that all who are on Christ's list, all who have been appointed to die for him, must die before he comes. We don't know when that'll be. We don't know when, when the Lord says, okay, you've penetrated every culture enough of the gospel that's been met. Neither do we know when everyone who is on the list of martyrs has been martyred. And the third thing is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And it's going to be worse, at least for a brief time, than it is now. Clearly today, our culture, and in many cases, people in places of power, increasingly are becoming enemies of the church. Now in the past, it was covert. Now it's becoming overt. In many, many ways, many, many areas. And we're going to have to take a stand. Any church that adheres to the biblical standards concerning sin, Christ, heaven, hell, and the way of salvation is an obstacle to self-centered humanities being the full measure of itself. Some years ago, John Lennon wrote really a beautiful song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell above us, no hell below us, above us, only the sky. 
Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope that someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No greed for hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Here's my response. When I was in the fourth grade, Hitler invaded Poland. When I was in the sixth grade, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And near the end of my sixth grade year, when our nation was thoroughly engulfed in war in Europe and the Pacific, I thought about it and came to my teacher, went to my teacher. Depends on where you're from. If you're from Mississippi, you carry somebody to the store. In Oklahoma, we take somebody to the store. In New Hampshire, I bring somebody to the store. So depending on where you're from, I either went to or came to my teacher. And I said, why don't all of the nations of the world gather together? And should any one nation decide to rise up and attack another, all the nations will jump on that one and put an end to it. She said, Jim, don't lose that dream. When you're a man, maybe you can make it happen. Of course, in my childish innocence, I was not cognizant <laughs> of the depravity of man and how we were born with this horrible propensity to sin, nor the incessant activity of Satan. World War I supposedly was the war to end all wars. And after World War I, we had the League of Nations, and according to progressive thinking, war was going to become obsolete. And then we lived through the horrors of World War II. That hope proved to be folly. And now we have the United Nations, and still we have wars. <laughs> and then as I thought during those days and began to think about the disparity in wealth, there are wealthy people, there are poor people, I thought, wouldn't it be a perfect world if the man who made shirts made all the shirts he could <laughs> and made them with high quality and the man who made pants made all the pants he could and made them with high quality. And the man who made shoes made all the shoes he could and made them with high quality. It would be that way with everything. And so if a man who made shirts needed shoes, he just went to get a pair. And the man who needed shoes needed a shirt, he just went to get a shirt. No money. A dream 
<laughs> that is impossible in this human race, and it's been tried times and times again. But human nature is such that just won't work. John Lennon wrote an appealing song with appealing an idea, but it's absolutely absurd. The nature of man is one of perversity, and without the restraining hand of God, any of this is an unrealistic dream. Now, all of that's a prelude to what I feel like I really am supposed to say, and that's this. When God removes his hand from a culture and evil abounds, and when men call good evil and evil good, even government authorities doing so, when the church finds itself beset on every side by a culture that views the church as the enemy, what is the church to do? And I don't want to be an alarmist, but frankly, I have to wonder if within a few years, those of us who are sincere followers of Jesus are going to find ourselves in the very place Christians found themselves in the Roman Empire prior to Constantine. It seems to me that unless God intervenes in a dramatic way, as he did in the late 60s and early 70s with the falling of the Holy Spirit, or in the first awakening, or the great awakening, unless something like that happens, I don't see how perversity and evil and persecution can be avoided by the corporate church or individual Christians. It's already happening to a degree, and I fear it will get worse unless God intervenes. Of course, that's what Jesus predicted. Matthew 24, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. These things must take place. That's not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, various places, famines and earthquakes. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. We saw that happening various times in history. Early church, it's happening now in many places. At that time, many will fall away. And will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is, in, lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations then the end will come. And so as the missionary enterprise pushes deeper and deeper into each nation and invades this culture and invades that culture, 
Satan will respond with persecution and God will permit it to be so. It will happen. And when it happens, there will be false prophets, verse 11. When it happens, there will be false Christ, verse 5. When it happens, there will be coldness toward God and Jesus, verse 12. When it happens, there will be many Christians who will fall away and even become haters of the brotherhood, verse 10. It's coming someday. And the way things are going, I wonder how far in the future is it really going to be fulfilled. What are we to do? Paul wrote to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. A key element in this exhortation is the things you have learned and become convinced of. A couple of years ago in a sermon, we exhorted you to believe your beliefs. Do you really believe your beliefs? Do you believe them enough to die for them? If you're really not ready to die for your beliefs, then you really don't believe them. Today, it's important for every one of us to determine what we really believe and where we will stand when the attack comes. And those beliefs for which we are ready to pay any price if that price is demanded. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, how many of you know uh, who Paul of Tarsus is? I imagine most of you would raise your hand. If I'd say, if you know who Moses is, most would raise your hand. If I'd say who David is, most would raise your hand. But if I ask, how many of you know the identity of Antipas? A few may raise your hand, but probably not many. Revelation chapter 2, To the angel of the church in Pergamon write, The one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Could there be anything grander to be chiseled on one's gravestone than that? My witness my faithful one who was killed among you. The Greek word martus means witness. And you can witness in word and you can witness in deed. 
and some are called upon to witness by their death. And what a compliment to the church at Pergamon. You live where Satan dwells. Pergamon was not a commercial city. Pergamon was a religious center. It was a city that was filled with many temples, temples that were dedicated to a number of gods. Some that you might know would be Zeus, uh, Aphrodite, uh, the god of medicine, Asculapius, but many others. And, of course, the worship in many of these temples was quite immoral by godly standards. And so this center of false religion, Paul, or rather Jesus said as he wrote to the church, you live where Satan's throne is. His throne in all of those false religions and idolatrous places and the demons that inhabited them and received the worship of those who worshiped in those places. The church had been persecuted and it had been faithful to the name of Jesus and at least one had been killed. In order to prepare for that day, if it does come, every one of us better know what we really believe and believe with all of our hearts and be willing to die for it. Because something wonderful is waiting on the other side. The second thing is this. It's important that we develop Paul's crucified mindset. I have been crucified with Christ. Henceforth it is no longer I that live. But the life that Christ lives in me. And in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him, loved me and and gave himself for me. It's interesting. Notice the language. If Paul should have been crucified for his sins. But was not because Christ was crucified in his place. Paul virtually pictures himself. As being superimposed with Christ upon the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. Henceforth. Ah, my, what a thought. Paul realized that Christ paid the price for his sins and he was a dead man. (laughs) But he also was alive because Christ dwelled within him. And you know, probably the biggest challenge for every Christian is to die to self. Some weeks ago, as David Kelly and I were getting together, he handed me an article, and he he had underlined a quote. And I read the quote and said, that's Jim Garrett. There's a quote by Martin Luther, I am more afraid of my own heart than I am afraid of the Pope and all of his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. And that has to be my confession as well. Continually 
beseeching God to let me become so aware of Him that I am not aware of myself. (laughs) I've yet to get there. Pride. You know, in many ways, it'd be easier to die for Jesus than it is to live for Him. (laughs) You die for Him, zing. (laughs) It's done. But every day, to suffer the, as Shakespeare said, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, (laughs) and experience what Daniel wrote about one of the beasts. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. You know, that's one of Satan's big tools is just to wear us out every way he can. But even though the battle gets wearisome and we still hear the voice of Scripture, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Consider him, this is speaking of Jesus, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at Jesus if you're getting tired. In his letter to the seven churches, Jesus commended the church at Ephesus with these words, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Last Monday, I attended the funeral of Dan Covington's sister in Muskogee. And I had the privilege of spending a bit of time with the two boys and then after the service with Dan and Mary Lou. And as we chatted, Dan said, you know, the leaders of the church in Honduras keep saying to him, Dan, when are you going to retire? And his response is, I don't plan to retire. (laughs) What would I do if I retired? I'd keep on doing the same thing I did before I retired. (laughs) Isn't that the attitude all of us should have when it comes to the work of God? Retirement is not in our vocabulary. Third thing we need to remember is this. The gate and the way that leads to life is narrow. And the way that leads to death and destruction is broad. And we must resist the impulse, sometimes out of human compassion, to widen the gate. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now think about that. What Jesus said is that those of us who walk through the narrow gate of life will always be a minority. And his words imply a small minority of all the people in the world. We cannot expect the people of the world live by the same standards we do. Same-sex marriage, why not? What other standard do they have? Abortion, why not? What other standard do they have? But we have a different standard. And that's the standard that our Lord has laid out. 
And a major aspect of that narrow gate is that there's only one way to the Father. As Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that's being attacked everywhere. I was saddened to read an article in the Tulsa World. I think it was a week ago in which two prominent leaders of the city, one a Jewish rabbi, the other the minister of a prominent church, were both retiring. And each of them talked about their great friendship, and they prayed together, and they were praying to the same God, and neither felt any need to convert the other. If that's true, Jesus' blood was wasted upon the cross. There's a difference between those who belong to Jesus and those who are just spiritual persons. And the world doesn't like that. (laughs) It urges us to compromise. One last thing. When you look at the church of Pergamon and you see all the praise, our Lord did have one rebuke. I have a few things against you because there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I'll make war against him with my sword, so on and so on. What was he talking about? When you read the account of Balaam and Balak, here's the situation. The Israelites were just about ready to cross the Jordan River, and they had just defeated the Amorites. And Balak was king of Moab, and he realized that he could not defeat the Israelites. He had seen what they had just done to the Amorites. What was he going to do? Nearby there was a prophet named Balaam. And so Balak sent a message to Balaam. I want you to come. I'll give you a handsome fee if you'll come and pronounce a curse on the Israelites. Because he knew that everybody that Balaam blessed was blessed. And everybody that Balaam cursed was cursed. And Balaam said, I can't do it. I can only speak the things that God puts in my mouth. So the messengers went back and told Balak. This time he sent some men who were rather august and prominent with a bigger sum of money. Balaam said, I have to seek God. God said, go with them, but don't you say anything I don't give you. (laughs) Well, he started off on the donkey, and obviously Balaam's heart wasn't right because, remember, there's an angel, a donkey balked, you know all that story. But he finally got to the place, and instead of a curse, he pronounced a blessing. And Balak said, wait a minute, I was paying you to pronounce a curse. Well, I can only say that which is God. It happened three times. Then in the next chapter, you read that the Moabite women began to draw the Israelite men into their worship. And later on, you read in Numbers uh, that it was Balaam's idea. He said to Balak, if we can't conquer them, 
we can corrupt them. And we'll corrupt them by the Moabite women, chapter 31 of Numbers, the Moabite women seducing the Israelite men, and they'll begin to involve in false worship. If we can't conquer them, we'll corrupt them, and they did. And as a result, the Lord had to destroy many Israelites. And Jesus said, that's what you're doing in Pergamon. You are tolerating the Nicolaitans in your presence. The Nicolaitans were a Gnostic sect who took the point of view that really the body is evil, but the spirit belongs to God, and what the body does has no effect upon the spirit. And they were noted for their immorality. As a matter of fact, they tell the story of their founder, who had a very beautiful wife, and he thought the apostles lusted after her, and he said, well, you can have her. Strange story, but that's the story they told about their founder. And Jesus said to that purse, that church in Pergamos, you stood for me, You've, some of you died for me, but you're tolerating the Nicolaitans in your presence, and they are doing just the same thing that Balaam advised Balak to do to corrupt Israel. And if you don't straighten that out, I'm coming. The point being, we must be very, very careful that we do not allow anything to corrupt us. We must hold faithful to the Lord, His way, and the things that have given us. Perhaps most importantly, we must become increasingly zealous about evangelism. Sending missionaries throughout all the world, praise God, but allowing the Holy Spirit through us to touch this life and that life, and in some cases probably intentionally going out to reach the lost. 1 Corinthians 15:58 Therefore my beloved be ye steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May God be praised.